Hello, all my amazing, fantastic, freaking awesome, beautiful people. What the heck is up? So, we have finally reached the final part of this case. You're amazing for sticking with it for so long. Um, all the cliffhangers will finally come to an end in this specific case. And your true crime, true, oh my gosh, true crime needs will finally be met for now until next week. So, this is like I said earlier, part three of the Dorothea Puente case that I've been doing. Um, if you haven't watched part, or watched, wow, haven't listened to part one and part two, um, go do that or you're going to be mildly confused. Um, but I think we should just get right into this because I had to speed home after I got off of my real job to come here, record really quickly before Josie, my little sister, got into town because t it's Friday today. You're listening on Sunday, possibly. Um, but tomorrow, as in Saturday, is my birthday. So Josie's coming to visit me for my birthday and I need to hurry. Also need to not belch in the mic. That's for you, mom. Okay, grab a snack, grab a drink, grab your projects. Let's get into this. Um, I'm sorry, not crocheting anything today because I gotta really hurry. So, we left off on John Sharp telling the cops about all of the things that he'd heard while and seen while living in the boarding house, which resulted in them calling in the homicide team, or them, him, resulted in John Sharp, or, wow, yes, oh my gosh, the homicide team was called in. When the officers handed the key, or the case over to the homicide team, they pulled all of the records they had on Dorothea, just to see what they were really dealing with, you know, um, and who they were about to confront. So, John Cabrera was the leader of the homicide unit, and he found that Dorothea had a lengthy criminal record, which he pulled Dorothea's list of crimes up, or when he pulled Dorothea's list of crimes up. He also found that she was currently on probation for drugging and robbing two different people. So, not only did he find this, but he also found out that Dorothea had a boarding house previously, and that it was actually taken away from her because it was found that she was stealing her tenant's government checks. Yeah not good. So remember how earlier I mentioned that she would lie about how old she was? Yeah. So John Cabrera also found out that while she was telling people that she was in her like mid to late seventies, she was actually only 59. Uh, clearly all of these things added up seemed super suspicious. So that homicide or the homicide unit got straight to work. Um, on November 11th of 1988, John Cabrera and a few other officers came together to go simply just, you know, speak to Dorothea about the fresh holes in her yard and the concerns with her criminal history. The first thing that John and his team wanted to do was search the house. And when they asked to do so, Dorothea was like scarily calm and okay with them doing it. Um, she's confident, you know? Um, and if you remember from last week's episode, Bert Montoya was the whole reason this was happening. Like the whole reason the officers even showed up in the first place. Um, so they were primarily looking for signs and clues that Bert was there or had been there recently. Um, and although they didn't find anything belonging to Bert or Bert himself, uh, John did find something suspicious. Uh, uh, wow, stuttering is already off to a great start. Um, he did find something suspicious in Dorothea's bedroom. So on Dorothea's nightstand, there were two pill bottles. One was completely empty and the other one was so full that it was spilling over the top. Upon further investigation, um, John realized that these pills were actually prescribed to a woman named Dorothy Miller. Do you remember that name? Yeah, 
one of Dorothy's victims, Dorothea's victims. So when Dorothea was asked about the pills and the name on the bottle, she simply explained it off as it being one of her relatives that recently stayed at the boarding house and that she just, you know, must have forgotten the bottle when she left. After searching the rest of the house and not coming up with anything of suspicion, the officers asked Dorothea if they could dig around the front yard before they left. Dorothea was actually like really chill about the fact that they wanted to do this, um, but before she let them, she wanted to know why they wanted to do it. And they mentioned that they had just heard there were mysterious holes often appearing in the morning and it seemed like something they needed to look into. Yeah, bro, the, the holes held bodies. <sighs> Dorothea agreed that it would be something of suspicion, and then she even offered them a shovel to dig with. So there were three men digging in the backyard, and after 45 minutes, they were about to give up until one of the men started digging at pieces of old cloth. Even though he couldn't figure out what kind of cloth this was, he did dig up another piece of fabric that he assumed was leather. Keep that one in mind. This officer kept digging until he hit what he thought was a tree root, and realized that it was much too difficult to do on his own, so he called over the other two officers to help him. So all three of these men are working on this tree root and um, they're trying to dig it out of the ground and relocate it so that they continue their inspection. Um, and then it started to come loose a little bit. So John Cabrera sees that there's some give to it and he pulls on it with all of his might. And he pulls on it so hard that once it comes loose, it knocks him back like he falls back to the ground. Um, so he's holding this tree root in his hands and he's looking at it. And as he's looking at it, he's realizing that it, it doesn't really look like a tree root. And this is when John realizes that he's holding a human bone. Yeah. So the three men intentionally kept digging as normal, um, trying not to alert Dorothea. And eventually they find the rest of the human remains in this particular gravesite. And once they've dug up the whole body, they then retrieve Dorothea and bring her over to the hole to show her that what they had found and see if she had any explanation. She obviously acted fake surprised. Um, and that's when the team knew that they were working with a murderer from her reaction. Um, and at this point, they knew that they should stop digging and call in a CSI team because the CSI team would know how to handle and dig up the bodies in a way that wouldn't damage them. Um, so yeah, they called the CSI team. And once the CSI team was called in, their job for the next few days was to dig up the entirety of the yard on 1426 F Street and examine their findings. As they were finishing up the job that John Cabrera and his two officers started, they concluded that the body they had found belonged to a woman. Um, now, obviously, finding any woman or any body buried in someone's backyard is alarming. But when this team was called out to look for Montoya's body and they dig up an older woman's body, things get a little bit serious, if you know what I mean. Um, Matthew's clipping his nails in the bathroom and I can hear it. I hope that you can't. While this team is discussing their next steps in digging up the backyard, Dorothea approaches John Cabrera and asks him if she's officially under arrest or not. He explains to her that while she isn't under arrest, he would like her to come down to the station to take a lie detector test and be ruled out as a suspect. Um, it was at this point when Dorothea told John that if she took a lie detector test right now, the results would come out wrong because she was too anxious with everything that was happening. And then she expressed that she was just so anxious she needed to get away from the house for a minute. So she asked John Cabrera if she could walk down to the down the block and grab a coffee and sit with her nephew for a while. And unbelievably, somehow, she was allowed to do so. Apparently they didn't deem her as a flight risk or anything like that. So she did get an escort out of her property, past the media, 
um, and to the hotel at the end of the street. But that's where John Cabrera dropped her off and returned to the search. Yeah. So not even 20 minutes into Dorothea being gone for coffee, the CSI team finds yet another leg. Once the second body is found, that's when they realize that this is no mistake. These two bodies are 100% linked to Dorothea, and she needed to be put under arrest immediately. But here's the catch. She was already on the run. Duh. Why else would she go ask for coffee? Um, it was so obvious to everybody at this point that Dorothea was guilty because she had waited for the perfect time to ask to get coffee on her own. Uh, she had seen, like, the area that they were digging in and knew that there would be a body found soon, so she was looking for a way out to escape. Smart woman, I guess, I, if you want to say that. I don't know. So not only is the CSI team still digging in the yard, but now police are on the search for Dorothea Puente. Not long after the second body was found, a third body was found, wrapped in blankets, then in cloth, then in a layer of plastic, and then it was all taped up. This is when it was assumed that they had found one of the earlier killings because there was obviously much more effort put into its disposal. And officer, officers knew that this yard would take multiple days to uncover because it was a big yard and there were lots of bodies to find. Um, so they used this time to get a jump start on the identification of the bodies that would be found. So they started asking around the neighborhood and if anybody had heard or seen anything suspicious. One neighbor in particular mentioned the disgusting smell that came from Dorothea's home, but said that Dorothea had always claimed it was the fertilizer that she had laid in the garden. Another neighbor that they had talked to had some suspicions about um, some items he found that he wanted to show them. He said that on the morning of the investigation, he found 15 human teeth in his garden. Um, officers thought that it was very likely Dorothea chucked the teeth into the garden while trying to discard of any evidence. At this point, the officers had gotten the idea to get a hold of some social workers and make a giant list of all the tenants that stayed in the boarding house. This way they could kind of go down the list and see if they could get into contact with the tenants on the list or see if their families knew of their whereabouts or see if their families knew if they were, like, dead. Um, I just lost my spot. Oh, if they couldn't get into contact with them and their families and didn't know, like, if their families didn't know where they were, they would try matching one of the bodies to one of the names. So as John Cabrera was looking at the list, one particular name stuck out to him. Dorothy Miller. And that's when he realized that Dorothy was not a relative of Dorothea, but another victim. So there were still no signs of Dorothea or where she had fled to, and police were desperately trying to track her down. Now, right? Fully so. Yeah, <laughs> she's a murderer. Um, the officers on this case actually got into contact with the officers on the Mexican border because back when Dorothea was caught for drugging and robbing people, she had brought or bought that one-way ticket to Mexico, and although she never fled then, she was fully capable of doing it now and had a bigger motive to do it now, so. Um, why do I keep losing my spot? On November 15th, two more bodies were found, now totaling in five bodies found in the yard, and over these five bodies, there were various periods of decay. This signaled to officers that these, these murders had been going on for quite some time, not just like recent. Some of the bodies were just bone, while others seemed quite fresh as if they were only killed weeks before they were found. With no sign of Dorothea and no further leads to go on the officers. Um, I read that wrong. <laughs> With no sign of Dorothea and no further leads to go on, comma, <laughs> the officers reached out to the public for answers. 
This is when the team was contacted by a halfway house. Um, halfway houses are basically just like homes or shelters for people that are recently out of prison. And it gives them sort of a cushion between prison life and civilian life, if you want to say. Um, the halfway or this halfway house that contacted the team contacted them because they knew the people who were digging the holes for Dorothea. Uh, the people digging the holes were their own parolees. Obviously, none of these parolees knew what they were digging for, but they were just, you know, people desperate for work. And Dorothea knew that they would do anything for money. So she offered them yard work jobs, which was really just digging graves. Um, things like this just added to her happy old lady helping the community persona. Like, oh, let me help these people in this halfway house get a job because they need money. Um, and not only were these parolees asked to dig holes that they had no idea the purpose of, but one of the police came forward, no, parolees, not police, one of the parolees came forward, one of the parolees came forward and said that Dorothea came to him and asked him to call Judy Moyes, pretending to be Bert's uncle. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. So the parolee explained that Dorothea was tired of social workers being on her back, and he thought that he was helping out the sweet old lady by pretending to be Bert's uncle. But after hearing that five bodies were found in her backyard, he realized that he probably needed to come forward. The next day, on November 16th, the CSI team decided to tear down a shed, and what do you know? A sixth body was found underneath the shed. After they tore down the shed and found the body, they realized that they had not much backyard and side yard left to dig up, so they moved to the front yard where there was just a small patch of grass. After a while, a seventh body was found. After digging up this body, the CSI team realized that this was the only body that had the hands and feet cut off as well as the head. Um, this meant that this first this was the first body that Dorothea had buried on the property, and this was the body of Betty Palmer. Another tip had come in from someone else living in the neighborhood, and they said that they had once seen Dorothea digging up and or digging in the empty land across the road from their house. Dorothea probably thought that she could get away with hiding bodies there because houses were going to be built over them and they would never be dug up. Um, but they ended up not actually finding anything there. Thankfully, if you can say, thankfully. Um, and since they didn't find anything in that lot across the street, they decided to move back into the house to see if they could find more clues. They had also moved the residents out at this point. It's kind of obvious, but I feel like I needed to say that. Um, and the CSI team found numerous pieces of evidence Things like carpet cuttings from the death room, pill bottles registered to dead tenants, and books about various illnesses and medications. The team had also contacted the system that dispersed the benefit checks and asked them to give them a list of everybody that had their checks sent to 1426 F Street. And when they received the list back, they were surprised to see that victims that had been deceased for multiple years, as well as like a few weeks, were still receiving checks to the address all because of Dorothea's conning. She was able to convince not only the benefit system that they were still alive, but also their loved ones, just to make sure that they wouldn't be considered missing or declared dead so she could still, you know, rake in that dough. This really proved how good Dorothea was at picking her victims. I, I know it's not a good trait to have, but it's a trait and it's hers. Um, anyway, by day five of the investigation, this case had reached almost international news, which didn't help the public, um... It didn't help that the public knew Dorothea was on the loose after seven bodies are found in her yard. And with this being international news came international press. There was a large amount of, of media that were gathering outside of Dorothea's house to record and report on the items that were being taken out of the house by the CSI team. 
and eventually the mass amount of press reached Everson Gilmas Gilmas I can't, can't say his last name and it's really rude um Everson's family and when his family saw the woman on the news they immediately knew that that was Everson's supposed new wife and they ended up contacting Sacramento's police force and explained the situation urging that they needed to look for Everson as well the police explained that none of the bodies had been identified as Everson yet, and he wasn't a current resident at the house, but they would keep their eyes and ears open for more information, and they would inform them of anything new. That same night that Everson's family called, the team received their first tip about where Dorothea possibly was. A man claimed to have been speaking to her at a bar just the night before, and he didn't immediately come, become suspicious when he started until, oh my gosh, let me start that sentence over. Um, a man claimed to have been speaking to her at a bar just the night before and didn't immediately become suspicious when she started asking him about his government checks. After he went home, he watched the news and saw the story of Dorothea Puente. And the next morning, after the alcohol had worn off and he had gathered his thoughts, he realized that he was definitely talking to her. Thankfully, Dorothea was not smart for once and told the man where she was staying. And you won't believe it. You just won't believe it. She was, she was staying at a hotel just outside of Sacramento this whole time. Yeah. So the police sped to the hotel and knocked on her door to which she answered and gave them a fake name. And after asking for an idea with that name, which couldn't be provided, police arrested her and escorted her to the police station. At this point, autopsies and tests were beginning on both the bodies and the materials found in the house and the yard. And back before any bodies were found, that piece of cloth and that piece of assumed leather that they were dug up, um, you may be wondering why I keep referring to the leather as assumed leather. And it's because after tests were run, the leather was found to be not leather at all. The leather was actually human flesh, and it had fallen from the bone and hardened over time. Yeah. Not, not nice. While the autopsies were being run, experts were finding it very difficult to identify the bodies due to their level of decomposition, and thankfully there was at least one body that was going to be pretty easy to identify. This body belonged to Benjamin Fink, the man who became rowdy at dinner one night, do you remember? Um, Benjamin was the fourth body found, and luckily he had tattoos, which were what identified him. Along with Benjamin, two other bodies had decent fingerprints, enough to identify them as Dorothea Miller, Dorothy Miller, and Bert Montoya. So they finally found Bert. Um, and over the next few days, they were able to identify the four other bodies as Vera Martin, James Gallup, Betty Palmer, and Leona Carpenter. Police obviously knew that with crimes this serious, the bodies buried in her backyard probably weren't the only victims of hers. Um, so they contacted all the surrounding city's police departments and asked them if they had any cold cases that fell under Dorothea's M.O. That's when one particular department got in contact with them and told them about the unidentified male victim from a case back in 1986. They explained that this was the case of a very decomposed elderly man who was found in a wooden box dumped in a river. Eventually, this body was identified as Everson's, and his body could be formally laid to rest as well as his family be at peace. Um, with this news, Ruth Monroe's children once again contacted police and begged them to reopen her case. And after they explained that Ruth's death held the same characteristics as most of Dorothea's other victims, the police started to take them seriously. The case was finally reopened, and they took a look into all of the details, including how she died, how much medication was in her system, what medication was in her system, and, at last, Ruth Monroe was considered one of Dorothea Puente's murder victims. 
Thank the Lord. When Dorothea was put on trial, she was being tried for nine murders. Seven were the tenants found on her yard, and the other two were Ruth and Everson. Although this was supposed to pl take place in 1990, it didn't actually happen until 1993 due to the constant location changes because of mass media gatherings. We love the media. Dorothy was given the opportunity to plead guilty for all nine murders and spend life in prison but avoid the death penalty, or she could choose to plead not guilty and possibly be given the death penalty. Guess, guess what this woman chose? Yeah, she chose a second option. Uh, Dorothy would rather plead not guilty and possibly get a death sentence than just fess up to what she did. So when the trial finally started, people were actually finding it pretty difficult to see Dorothea as the murderer because nobody ever saw her actually murder anybody. Uh, she was so good at playing this sweet old innocent lady role that nobody could believe that she actually did it. And it didn't help that her, that the body's causes of death couldn't be determined. This is where Dorothea's defense team flourished. They tried to go with the storyline that she didn't actually kill anyone. They realized it would be far too hard to say that she didn't do anything, period. So they went with the tale that she 100% did steal their checks, and they definitely did die in her house, and she for sure dug the holes and disposed of their bodies, but she didn't kill them. They claimed that yes, they had all died in her house, but they had died from things such as natural causes and from their illnesses. They said that Dorothea felt the need to bury these bodies on her own because she knew what she was doing was illegal. She was running a boarding house after being told she legally could never own one again, and if she were to call the police and tell them that one of her residents had died, she would be put back in prison. As she should. She said in front of the court that she knew what she was doing was wrong, but in order to keep her business alive, she had to do what she had to do. Girl, go be a janitor or something. Like, you can make just the same amount of money doing something else. I don't know. You're just a murderer. Um, but I will admit it, it's a very believable story and the prosecution knew this and they knew that they knew that it would be hard to fight because they really couldn't prove that she was the one that killed the tenants because the bodies were so decomposed. But the Dalmain, the drug that she told everyone to get because it would help them sleep. No, it would help you kill them. Um, when this was brought up in court, Dorothy explained how she gave this to all of her tenants. Yes, sis, we know. We know you did. Um, because it would help them when they couldn't fall asleep. And after looking through all the medical records of both Dorothea's tenants and Dorothea herself, it was concluded that Dorothea had been pre prescribed in total over 1,000 pills of Dalmain during the span of her time owning the boarding house on 1426 F Street. 1,000 pills doesn't you know, seem too intense until you think about the fact that it is a strong sedative that builds in one system. So finally, after 50 days of this long, miserable trial, the jury went to deliberate. It took the jury over six months of deliberation. Six months. Yeah. I read somewhere that this was the longest time a jury has ever been in deliberation, but it's because not everybody thought Dorothea was guilty. Uh, there were 12 members of the jury on this case and 11, all but one, thought she was guilty, and the 11 that knew she was guilty even had a hard time deciding which charges she would get for which murders and all that, since there are, like, different degrees and such. Um, but finally, after six months, they decided, and the jury came back from deliberation and found Dorothea Puente guilty of the first-degree murder of Dorothy Miller and Benjamin Fink and decided that she was guilty of second-degree murder of Leona Carpenter, but the other six murders were declared a mistrial. All because of that 12th juror 
who thought that she wasn't guilty. So for those three murders that she was guilty of, she was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And believe it or not, the jury was sent back to deliberate whether or not she would receive the death penalty, but they just couldn't decide. Uh, so the judge had, had to decide and concluded that life in prison was enough punishment. Like, yo, there's, there's six other victims, uh, waiting for their justice. How about we charge her for those two? You know, I'm not saying give her the death penalty, but um, I am saying stack those charges up, stack them up. The other inmates will take care of her for us. Um, also, so here's a little like funny, it, it's not really funny, but it's funny compared to murder. Um, in 2004, Dorothea had a pen pal who literally helped her write a cookbook. Um, she had a ton of pen pals because people are weird and write to serial killers in prison and stuff. I don't know. Um, but she would mail him her favorite recipes and he would put them into a book for her. And then he published it. And it's called Cooking with a Serial Killer Recipes from Dorothea Puente. Classy. Yeah. I hope he's making money off of that, not her. Um, and on March 27th, 2011, Dorothea Puente passed away in prison from natural causes at age 82. Also, as far as I know, um, the couple that lives in 1426 F Street now makes light of the gruesome things that went on there. Um, they have a dark sense of humor. And the sense of humor actually makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but I feel like as long as you aren't mocking the victims or the people that were harmed, it's all fun and games. They put a mannequin out on the porch dressed in the same clothes as the famous, like, the famous arrest photos of Dorothea. And they hang up signs that say things like, don't park across the driveway, the ghosts like to get out at night. Um, they also have a plaque on the gate that meets the sidewalk that says, it was that awful, awful woman that did it, don't blame me. Which, I, I think that's neat, you know, like, yeah, don't blame the house. Um, I also read that they left all of the original flooring in the house. Original flooring. Death room. Um, I won't go any further on that. But they also didn't think that the house was haunted, but the wife's mother lived with them for a while and says that she definitely saw things in the house. Um, she said that once she was sleeping and woke up to a light being switched on, and when she realized what was going on, she saw a woman pacing around the around the room the woman stopped, came up really close to her face, and then just walked out of the room. Chilling. Chilling. Um, she told another story about a time when she was walking down the hall to her room, and she just approached, like, as she was approaching her room door, she became really, really scared for no reason. Um, and she decided to open her door a crack and look in, and she saw a bright, giant orange orb floating around the room. Uh, so believe that if you want, or don't. I can't tell you what to do about that. Um, but yeah, that's that's all on Dorothea Puente. We've finally reached the end of that long case. Um, you guys are awesome. I'm making this short and sweet. I'm sorry. Um, but now your part three needs are fulfilled. Um, I love you guys so much. Happy birthday to me tomorrow. Um, or if you're listening on Sunday yesterday... Um, lock your doors and don't talk to creepy men or Dorothea Puente and don't let serial killers go to coffee. Okay.